Good morning. Let me add my good morning and I check that, yes, I've managed to switch on the right buttons, so we're good to go. <laughs> um, it's really great to see everybody this morning, a fairly dreary day. I'm not going to boast about where we'll be this time next week. Just passing on by, passing on by. Um, if you've been coming along to Southside over the last few months, really, certainly weeks, you'll know that we've been going through a series called I Am. And it's, as you'll be aware, most of you, that it's not the I Ams of Jesus. So it's not the I Am, the way, the truth, and the life. It's not I Am, the good shepherd. It's not I Am, the true vine. It's not any of these things. It's about the I Ams that I Am and you are and we all are. So we've looked at I Am a worker. I am made for community, I am challenged, I am still, I am sent, I am equal, and I'm not the long-lost cousin. And we come to the end of this series today, as Dan's indicated, we're moving on next week, but we've come to the end with what, you know, perhaps overarches all of these things in I am a child of God. I am a child of God. And we sing it and we, we think we know it, but I just wondered as I was looking at this, you know, what does that really mean? Because sometimes we say things in church, don't we, that, you know, we just say them and we don't actually take time to think about them. What does it really mean if I am a child of God, if you are a child of God? What does it look like? Do we believe it? And more importantly, perhaps, do we live it? And children, you know, children can be tricky. Parenting can be a minefield. <laughs> Looking over kind of to this side of the room, um, I read a story recently about this summer that um, a dad had bought two of his sons ice cream cones and he bought one vanilla and one chocolate, which I thought instantly when I read that, what a rookie mistake. Anyway, he asked the boys which one did they want and one of them went his. And that's, you know, that can be parenting, that can be children, that's, that's what they're like. Um, and I don't know, you know, as I was thinking about that, I am a child of God, What's childhood like for some of us? What has it been like for some of us? What is it like currently? What are children like? And makes you reflect on things. Some of us have to reflect back further than others, clearly, but you know, it makes you reflect on things. And I don't know what your childhood looked like. Mine was a happy one. I have to say I, had, I was very blessed to have a happy childhood. But I do realize that even in a, in a group this size, that will not have been all of our experience and we have to kind of acknowledge that for some of us, that's where we're starting from when we think of this business of being, I am a child of God. As I say, mine was, was a happy one. I was well fed and cared for. I was loved. I felt secure. Um, I knew that I was, I was wanted. I had boundaries and direction. I was encouraged to work. I was encouraged to appreciate the value of things. All of these kind of things. Um, I had some really good friends, some of whom are still really good friends, astonishingly. They put up with so much, but they're still really good friends. And uh, some of them I've reconnected with just recently through the wonders of Facebook. It's amazing. I got, this is a weird side, but I got one friend request from somebody I was at university with. And his, his cover, you know, his portrait, his cover photograph was him and five other guys. I could not work out which one he was. <laughs> So I kind of really look at it and think, what did he look like at 20? Well, that might just be him. Anyway, we got there, and I'm sure they're the same with me. But, um, you know, it's, it's easier in some ways, perhaps for me to say, perhaps for some of us to say, I'm a child, that's, that's easy. That's, that's not a problem. I've got a really positive view. But, you know, my parents wouldn't be perfect. They would have made mistakes. I was going to say that one of them was my younger sister, but will not... I'll not do that, that's far too negative. But you know, they would have made some mistakes, I'm sure, along the way. Steve and I would not have been perfect parents. We no doubt made some mistakes along the way. Please don't ask the children. But we did our best. 
You know, and we all do our best, I think, when we are, if we are parents, when we're doing that. But, you know, I think that even, even aside from the not being cared for, not being protected, not being looked after, did some of us ever actually feel not wanted? Were some of us ever told that we were a mistake? I know people that were told that by their parents, by the people that we think are there to love them, that they were a mistake. I read recently that when someone loves you, it means that they see something of value in you. So when someone loves you, they see something of value. And I thought today, you know, at the very start of this, you need to hear right now that there is someone who loves you and there is someone who sees value in you and that you are never a mistake and that you have a heavenly father who just adores you. And that's the bottom line for us today, that we have a heavenly father who adores us who surpasses even the best of earthly parents. I'm a child of God. I am loved by a heavenly father who is much more than any earthly father, mother, or parent could ever be. So anytime I struggle with feelings of isolation or loneliness or rejection, I need to remember this. I'm a child of God. I am never alone. He walks ahead of me. He walks behind me. He walks beside me. He'll never, ever leave me. We're going to be dotting about the Bible a wee bit this morning, so I'll give you some heads up if you like, if you like to look things up. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be in Mark 10. So it's almost a kind of thing where, you know, you might want to get a partner to look up the other ones. <laughs> We're going to be eventually in um, First Kings as well, and Ephesians. And Philippians, so there we are, we're having a wee, never mind the wee snapshots of the minor prophets, we're having a snapshot of the entire Bible this morning. So I'll tell you what they are, you can always look them up later if, if you wanted to have a wee look at them, but that's who we're going to be. But starting in, in Matthew's Gospel, um, Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Our Heavenly Father gathers us up and cuddles us in. Isn't that wonderful? I've had a, a kind of physical experience of that one time in my life where I genuinely felt God gather me up and sit me in his knee. And it was just amazing, absolutely amazing. And the Bible is full of examples of how God views us as his children and how God treated his children in the Bible. And, and way back, Nick spoke last week a wee bit about Genesis, but in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. They have eaten of the fruit that they were told not to. They know the difference then. And they're being sent away. You know, they, he could have been furious with them. They'd done the one thing. One thing you're asked not to do. How typical of children is that? You ask them not to do one thing. And that's the thing that they do. But before he banishes from the garden, it says this in, in Genesis 3.15. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I think that's just beautiful. He clothed them. Adam and Eve were children of God and he provided for them even after they had sinned, even after they had disobeyed and been sent away. They had previously made themselves clothes out of leaves which were never going to last. Makes them clothes out of skin, provides for them. I'm a child of God. I wanted to kind of encourage you that almost as this theme goes through of I am a child of God, think it in your own minds as well. I am a child of God. God will provide for me. I'm a child of God. Why at times have I not had more trust for that? If there's one thing 
there's probably many regrets, but if there's one thing I would regret, it's at times, the number of times I have worried and been anxious and fretted and nagged God about provision for things. And then you get to a stage and you think, you know, with hindsight, what a waste of time and what a lack of faith and a lack of trust because my God will provide for me. And we know that Jesus loves children. One of the, I used to have a Bible that had, you know, the, the old-fashioned with the photograph, the picture, well, it could be photographs, how ridiculous, anyway, paintings. And one of the paintings was when Jesus says in Mark's Gospel, in Mark 10, in verse 13, um, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. And I think that was one of the things, that was one of the big impacts in me when I was a child, was seeing that picture, reading those verses and knowing that Jesus loved children. And that's just really very special. But we need to think, you know, maybe what are children really like? How do we become more childlike in the ways that Jesus is talking about? What kind of childlike faith and attitudes do we need to develop or keep going or go back to or whatever? So one of the things I thought about with children is that children certainly laugh a lot more than adults. They do, don't they? I mean, there's a wee laugh there. There's a wee minor laugh there. Children laugh much more than adults do. There's a a kind of um, an urban myth that children laugh something like 300 to 400 times a day. I don't know if you've read that when an adults only laugh 17 times a day. But if you actually work out the sums of that, I mean, to be laughing three or 400 times a day, they would need to be like in non-stop hysteria. You know? And I actually thought that urban myth was true for a long time until I read something this week, and I thought, oh, goodness me, you're a sums teacher. Anyway, three, they don't laugh three or 400 times a, a day, but they do laugh an awful lot, and they do have more of a sense of fun, don't they? And they have more of a sense of, of the ridiculous and one of my things that I managed to resist doing but I really actually thought about bringing a pile of skipping ropes and some fancy dress stuff and seeing just who would be up for skipping around the hall this morning no, see that's why I didn't bother Um, but you know, occasionally, just occasionally at work there's been a few of us have been known to to skip along the corridor just for fun, usually in an in-service day but you know, just for a bit of fun we had hula hoops in one time for an in-service day all about health and well-being it really did work it was fabulous. It was so much better than insight or whatever else you're having to do just now, Douglas. Um, but, you know, it's that sense of fun, that sense of kind of the ridiculous. And, you know, maybe that's a change that we need to make in our lives. Let's try and get back more, a bit of the sense of fun. I'm a child of God. Maybe I do need to laugh more. Maybe I need to take myself less seriously. Maybe I need to intentionally look for the joy in life, even during hard times. There's a guy, an American comedian who's a Christian, Michael Pritchard. I actually, in all honesty, never heard of him before, but he said this, you don't stop laughing because you grow old. You grow old because you stop laughing. And I think there's a huge amount of, of truth in that. And the other thing about laughter is that it usually occurs in some kind of community. It's, it happens better when there's some kind of interaction with people. And that's another great reason for being, you know, a child of God made for community. I met some of my former colleagues yesterday for lunch, 
And, you know, things that are kind of mildly amusing when you text them or you put them on Facebook or, or anything like that, it would have been quite a quiet restaurant if it wasn't for us. Because as soon as you start telling some even mildly amusing story to somebody, then they start with, oh, do you remember that? And do you remember that? And before you're done, you're laughing uproariously. So laughter and fun happens better, I think, in, in community with a kind of catalyst of, of meeting up with each other. For the doctors in the room, laughter reduces stress, they'll know this, increases endorphins, improves the blood supply to the heart. I was thinking, you know, we could save the NHS a fortune. Nobody's ever thought about putting this in a bus. Prescribe a comedy DVD today. If the doctors were to prescribe you with a comedy DVD, we could save the NHS a fortune. We would be so much healthier. No. Okay, you don't laugh a lot. You need to laugh. Okay, so develop a sense of fun. I'll come back to that towards the end. I've got something that I was going to read to us. Because I do realise, you know, even as I'm saying these things, that you know, for some of us just now, you might be thinking, they're thinking, there is nothing fun in my life at all. And my life is really tough. And my life is really hard. But you're still a child of God who knows that about you. And it is trying to find that joy, even during the hard times. Children can be really unpredictable. And we know that. They can really struggle with their emotions. They don't have all their filters in place yet, perhaps. They don't quite understand the boundaries. They're trying to test out the boundaries. They can feel really isolated and alone and lonely. They can suffer as a result of favouritism, either if they see somebody else as the favourite or even if they're the favourite themselves. That's, that's damaging too. I get round that by kind of joking with my lot that I have a favourite eldest son, I have a favourite middle son, and I have a favourite younger son. And that usually kind of gets me over that wee bit. So try your best, no favouritism, because God has no favourites. I am not any more a favourite of God than any one of you are. They can feel really let down. First Kings 19. I'm going to read quite a lengthy bit in that, so if you wanted to have First Kings 19. I realise that we're about to start on, on the prophets. This is a story about the prophet Elijah. When you look at Elijah's life, you just think, what a man, and what incredible things Elijah saw. He participated in so many miracles that God was doing. He saw so many miracles that God was doing. He was fed at the start of this story. He was, he was fed by ravens who brought him bread and meat twice a day. Incredible. He promised a widow who was down to like her last jug of oil and her last wee bit of flour and there was a drought and they were all starving he promised her that if, he, if she gave him a meal then none of that would run out until the rains came which happened at a later point in the story he saves her son from death he resurrects him from death she would have been absolutely destitute if that boy had died he had one of the most amazing encounters against one of the most wicked kings and his, his prophets in this spectacular contest of calling fire down from heaven and setting fire to bulls and everything, pouring water over them, calling more fire, and more fire came and it burnt everything. Just incredible things, absolutely incredible things. And he, of all people, I was thinking, should be in this kind of perpetual spiritual high. You know, like, look what God does. Look what he does. You know, I'm never going to doubt anything again. I'm never going to go back. I'm, you know, think of times even that you've had a spiritual high in your life. You've seen God doing something really amazing and you think, this is it. I am never, ever coming back down to earth. This is wonderful. 
But in 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah broken and depressed and exhausted, feeling like he was the only one of the prophets left because he'd been told a lie and he'd believed the lie, hadn't checked it out. And he says to God, I've had enough. So what it actually says is this, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, you've got 24 hours and I'm going to kill you. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and he sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and he drank and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So this is a man that has served God faithfully, has seen amazing miracles And we might look on, like I said, and think, how on earth did he get to this place? How did he get to this place of absolute despair and misery and depression? And God could have looked at him and and thought more or less the same things. (laughs) Like, come on, man. (laughs) Look at what you've seen. Look at what you've done. Look at what I've done through you. And seriously, this is what you're going to do? There's no kind of like, man up. Get on with it. Come on. Let's get you going. There wasn't. What does God do? He gives them food and he gives them rest and he gives them understanding and he gives them compassion and he gives them love. He sends an angel to care for him. He shows Elijah in gentle ways and whispers just how much he cares for him. There's absolutely no condemnation in that at all, just rest and care and Elijah knowing that he's a child of God and that he has a heavenly father who loves him. I've got a couple of things to share that um, Pete Gregg from 24-7 Prayer just wrote in the last week, and one of them I'll read at the end is a bit longer, and this one's just very short, and it says this, and maybe this would resonate with, with some of us, a full schedule and a full heart are rarely the same thing. The pace of grace is slow. Love and life need time to breathe. A full schedule and a full heart are rarely the same thing. The pace of grace is slow. Love and life need time to breathe. And that's certainly something that, that resonates with me and, and resonates hugely at different times in my life as well. Where we can, particularly in church, I think we pack our schedule really full. You know, Nick quite often talks about, you know, if he's pointing one finger out, there's four coming back. I know this is absolutely for me. I know, you know, I can look at times in my life where, where there's just too much going on and it's all good. That's the thing, it's all good. You don't want to not be doing any of it. But in actual fact, the toll it's taken on you is not good. Because a full schedule and a full heart are often rarely the same thing. There's been much in the news recently, I don't know if you've picked it up, on the need for, particularly men, it has to be said, being able to express their emotions better. 
There was a, a wonderful wee BBC Two programme called No More Boys and Girls recently. I don't know if any of you saw it. And they were doing um, gender-neutral classroom because what they discovered was that by the age of seven, all of these boys and girls had absolutely fixed ideas about their value, their worth, and their opportunities. It was astonishing. I have to say, particularly for a woman of my age who hoped that by the time 2017 arrived, we would be much more equal in society. I say quite often, I say quite often to the, the girls at school, the boys are particularly misbehaving. Well, look at that, and they're still going to earn more. Where's the, where's the, where's the, the justice in that? But you know, this was quite astonishing in that these boys and girls had such already imprinted on them. But one of the really big ones was that the girls could express their emotions and the boys couldn't. When the boys were asked to describe things like happiness or joy or love, any of these things, they just struggled. They didn't have the words. The one that they did have the words for was anger. They could explain and express how they felt about anger. So this was the whole thing about trying to encourage them to, to talk more about how they felt. And, you know, at the same time as that, there has been stuff in, in the, the press from adult men and footballers and people that, you know, younger men would look up to and, and all that about how we have to get better at expressing our emotions. We have to be, because it's, it's so damaging to us when the times that they feel worn out and stressed and just not coping, if you can't express that to somebody, then it's damaging. It just all bottles up. The times where you feel you've messed up. It's, you know, and it's that whole thing about Sabbath rest. Times why, you know, time when God has called us to rest. That's why he created a Sabbath rest. Times when we need to seek out friendship. That whole community thing again. Seek out friends. I had something recently where I felt really down about something that happened quite a long time ago. But it made me think, did I deal with that really badly at that time? And was I not, you know, did I not do what I should have done? And, you know, it was, it was really all bottled up. And I spoke to a friend about it who had known me at that time and said, but that's not actually how it was. This is actually what you did. And this is what you said. You know, I was with you when we did these things. And it was just such a release because you know what it's like. We get it in our head, don't we? And then it, gets, it just stays there and it gets bigger and it gets over. Maybe it's just me. I mean, it could just be me. But I think that's true for all of us. Seek out friends. Seek out people that you trust. If they're Christian friends, get them to pray with you. But don't let things bottle up. Don't let things really, really get to you. Elijah was a child of God. And God cared for him. And he provided for him when he was at his very lowest point. And I'm a child of God. And you're a child of God. And God will care for you, even at your very lowest times. And why do I and why do you sometimes lose sight of that? Children also, I think, have an innate sense of fairness and justice. You know, that's not fair. <laughs> it's quite often a refrain. It's just not fair, whether it's bedtimes or mealtimes or school times or whatever. It's just not fair. But quite often, it's not just about their own circumstances. Generally speaking, they have an innate sense of justice for other people's circumstances. And frequently in prayer spaces in schools that I'm really connected with, that's what a lot of their prayers are about. It's about what they see and immediately recognise as injustice in the world. Things that are just not fair, particularly in their eyes for other children in the world. So they've got a really quick response time. They've got absolutely no compassion fatigue that the rest of us sometimes suffer for. You know, not another disaster, not another crisis, not another whatever. They just see it 
and they, they act and they just get it. About 25 years ago, when Blue Peter, I don't even know, does Blue Peter still exist? Is Blue Peter still on? No? Yes? I don't know. Nobody seems to know. Um, Blue Peter ran one of their famous appeals, you know, for you were always saving up things like stamps and milk bottle tops and goodness knows what, all your rubbish used to get sent off to Blue Peter and they turned it into money and they sent it off to some worthwhile cause. But they ran an appeal about 25 years ago for Romanian orphans just when the news had just started to break about what the orphanages had been like in Romania and Bulgaria and all of these kind of countries. And um, immediately, within the week, we had a bring and buy sale in our living room that our boys and their friends in the street had decided to organise. They saw it, they acted, they did it, they had hearts of compassion, they recognised it was an injustice. And I think that's a lesson always for all of us. Because, you know, God, I've said already, I think loves us all equally. He has no favourites. But he definitely has a heart and a special place in his heart for the vulnerable and for those who are in need. The Bible talks about the widows and orphans, the aliens and strangers. I mean, these would be the people in that society that were at huge risk of destitution and starvation, of hunger, of lack of shelter, of persecution, all of these things. And I am a child of God and these are my siblings. And the church family here at Southside has always been remarkably generous. And particularly, I think, over the last year or so, some of the, the amounts of money that people in this church family have donated to some of these big disaster areas has been quite incredible. Absolutely incredible generosity. And I know from, from many of you, in conversations with many of you, that many people support organisations like Tear Fund and Compassion and Open Doors. Tony Campola, I remember even in Straven many years ago, um, told this story about trying to raise money for children in these circumstances. And I don't know if any of you have ever heard Tony Campolo speak or read any of his stuff, but I mean, he just pointed at everybody in the room and he said, you had better hope that when you get to the gates of heaven, there is some small child running up to you saying, thank you for what you did for me. And everybody in the audience was kind of like, oh, we're dying, we're dying. But, you know, it was, it was true in that sense, you know, a heart of compassion for those who have nothing. The justice group were brilliant at that, I thought, when the, when the justice group were raising our awareness of all these sort of things. You know, there are now still shops where I'm like, oh no, can't do it, can't do it. Um, so, you know, raising our awareness of some of the practices that happen in some of the clothing industry factories and some of the shops and some of the food production, human trafficking, trafficking, prostitution, all of these things, raising our awareness of these things. And more importantly, not just raising our awareness, but then what are we going to do? How does that challenge us and how do we act on that? Because if I am a child of God and these are my siblings, then I need to do whatever I can do. I need to have, at the very least, a heart of compassion. I need to be praying. If I can, I need to be given outrageously generously. And I need to have a will for action. I need to actually put my faith into action and do something. And whether that's, you know, that will depend on all of our circumstances. That's why, in a sense, it's, it's one of these wonderful things that we can all be involved in. Because we can all pray. Some of us can give. Some of us maybe need to give more outrageously. Some of us maybe need to give more sacrificially. If that's what God calls us to do. There's no point in guilt tripping it. It has to be coming from God. We have to have a will for action. So is that signing an online petition? It takes seconds to do, but does actually have an impact. Is that contacting your MP or your MSP and saying, I don't like this happening, you know, what's your position on this? They really take notice of all these things. There are things that we can do. And if I'm a child of God, then I need to do that.
Children can be really willful as well. They can really have that really strong... I looked up the definition of willful. Intentional, deliberate, bad or harmful act, as in willful acts of damage. Or having or showing a stubborn and determined intention to do as one wants, regardless of the circumstances and consequences. It was really interesting because, as an example, the dictionary gave a spoiled, willful child. So that was quite appropriate. Now, I don't think I was a particularly willful child, I have to say. I don't think I was. And sadly, in one sense, there's absolutely nobody now that you can check that statement out with. So you just need to take my word for it. I don't remember being a particularly willful child. Um, I'm not going to trot out examples of, of when my own children were willful, because some of you might tell them. And um, Christmas is coming, so I want to keep on their good side. But if children themselves weren't willful, and in particular if the children of God were not willful, then I reckon there would be huge percentages of the Bible just missing. Because it's full of willful children and willful acts and people acting willfully. In, you know, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that's, that's what we are. We are willful. Our Connect group just now is studying Proverbs, and we're looking at wisdom and particularly wisdom for life. And Proverbs starts off with this, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. This is it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. I am a child of God. Why am I still at times so willful? The opposite of being willful includes, amongst other things, being teachable and being kind and being unselfish and being obedient. So I'm a child of God and I don't want to be willful. I want actually heaven's wisdom. I want heaven's instruction and teaching. I want to be kind and obedient and unselfish and teachable. And I think as we get older, we have to somehow retain that. It's quite hard, I think, as an adult and as you get older, perhaps, for people to correct you and to say, whatever, I don't think you did that right. Particularly if they do it badly and say, I don't think you did that right, as opposed to, have you ever considered doing it this way? But, you know, it's hard, isn't it? It can be hard but we need it and we need to be able to accept it from God because he wants us to be teachable and obedient and the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. If he didn't love us, he would just let us go on with it. If we didn't love our own children, we would just let them go on with it. They could just behave any way that they wanted, but we love them, so we teach them and at times we have to discipline them and God loves us, so he teaches us and at times he has to discipline us and we have to be open to that. So I suppose one of the things we need to think this morning is just how open am I to God's teaching and discipline and leading? How open am I to that? Children are unique. That's without a shadow of a doubt. Children are unique. Before I had children, we were about nine years married before we had children. And I kind of thought, to be quite honest, that they would be kind of like wee mini-me's or wee mini-Steve's. And of course, within about a week we discovered that they weren't many anyone's, they were we many themselves. And they had their own character and they had their own personality. And I'm more likely to adapt to that as opposed to the other way around. But they were very unique. And I'm a child of God and I am unique. There's only one of me. That's good. There was not a collective sigh of relief at that statement then. 
For there's only one of me, and there's only one of you. And again, there was no collective sigh of relief, so that's good. But no one could replace you in God's heart. Absolutely no one. You are unique. No one could do what he's called you to do. I always think that's an interesting one because I firmly believe that if God wants something to happen, if God wants a ministry to happen, for instance, God wants something to be done for his kingdom in this world, God can and will make that happen. If he asks us to do it, because we are unique, and this was what he called us and made us to do, and we don't do it, then it's perfectly within God's power to make it happen anyway. He can easily call and ask somebody else. And the loser in all of that then is us. So if God's calling you to do something because you're unique, because you're uniquely placed wherever he has placed you, you're uniquely gifted in whatever way he has gifted you, you're uniquely talented in whatever way he's, he's gifted you in that area as well, and you don't use it, whose loss is that? No one can have the influence that you have. No one else can have the influence that you have in your workplace, in your family, amongst your friends, amongst your neighbours, the people that you interact with in shops or businesses. Only you've got that potential to make that kingdom difference in that life. And I think that's quite a, a thing to, to ponder and think about. Your name is graven. I love that word. It's a very old-fashioned word. But your name is graven on his hand. Your name is carved out on his hand. He loves you. You are special. You're just adored. You're unique. Loved beyond all measure. Ephesians 3 says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Those verses are just hugely significant for me. Um, I think I've said before that, that I am by nature a warrior. I am by nature fairly anxious. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> but that's how it is. And, um, and there was a period in my life where I was really anxious about quite a lot of stuff and they were really big things. So it was right, you know, I've seen it was right, it's not right to be anxious, you know, it's a contradiction in terms, but that's just the reality of it. I was very worried, I was very, very um, down about it, it was a real burden to me. And I read those verses one morning and I know that kind of any experience of the Holy Spirit is quite amazing and quite spectacular, but this one was just incredible, absolutely incredible. Because, the, you know, as I was praying to God, I cannot actually do this anymore on my own. As in human terms, I don't mean not with Steve or not with the family, but I mean me, I cannot do this anymore. And those verses just, the Holy Spirit just absolutely illuminated them about how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for me. And those, this morning, I just felt really that I had to kind of like, like like tell you that, not just read them, but just say that this is what happened for me, that God just absolutely opened my eyes to the total reality of that. And that maybe for some of us this morning, that's the total reality that we need to know as well. 
And then Philippians 2 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And that's almost, isn't it, like mature childhood, where we can actually put each other first, where we can actually look out for the needs of each other, where we can have that mindset of Christ. It's a big ask, and we would never do that on our own. But we are children of God, and we are here as community, and we're here as family. I said earlier about um, Pete Gregg, about having a couple of things to read. This, this appeared on, on the internet this week that Pete Gregg from 24-7 had written, and, and I thought about reading it out and sharing it. Um, and then I noticed yesterday that it's been shared 361 times. So I reckon it's actually connected with a lot of people as they've read it. So I thought it would be quite good to, to read it to you. Because it is about that balance of, I'm a child of God, I should laugh more, I should be happier, I should be full of joy. But at the same time, balancing that with, here's life circumstances. Here's where I'm at in all of this. Um, so here it is. Tears come uninvited to us all in the end, but joy does not. It's a butterfly, a melody waiting to be named. Our surprising, unsolemn duty, therefore, is not just to weep at life's tragedy, but to laugh at its bounty. To marvel at the simple magnificence, magnificence of so many mundane things, the ephemeral light through a dirty window, that eternal moment between the first and second mouthful of chocolate cake. So light a fire tonight. Make the coffee strong. Stretch your limbs. Write someone a letter with a real, actual pen. Play Love Supreme by John Coltrane, loud. And should you happen to see a vapour trail at dawn, or a lawn cut in stripes, or a neat tattoo, or the iridescent flash of pink on a pigeon's head, Stop and stare in wide-eyed wonder like a child. Hallow the fleeting hours of this sacred pulse with an oratory of sighs, a liturgy of hugs and whoops of laughter. Believe again in the fundamental goodness of stuff, transubstantiated for us. Receive again this day the blessed sacrament. Looking for the joy, looking for the ridiculous, looking for things that just lift our spirits, even in the midst of life's tragedies. I was sitting in the car earlier, just waiting for the, the town hall to open up, and I saw a squirrel hopping along Fort Street, and this came to mind, and I thought, yes, I know, they're just like long-tailed rats, but they are cute. They are cute. And it hopped along there, and I thought, yeah, you see, and normally I might just go, oh, there's a squirrel, that's cute. But then I thought today, that's a squirrel in Fort Street. In here, what's that all about? And he just looks so cute. The dirty window thing really got to me as well. I thought, I don't need to clean the windows now before I go on holiday. It's fine, I'm going to wait until that sunshine comes through. And I'm just going to be joyful in that. But I'm a child of God. We are all children of God. We are made to be a worker. We're made to be part of a community. We're made to be challenged. We're made to be still. We're made to be sent. We're made to be equal. We are not the long lost cousin. We are many, many other things as well because we're children of God. 
I'm a child of God and fundamentally I was made to be in relationship with him. And we are children of God. And one day we get to go home. Amen.